Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 23, A Slip and Not a Fall, The Lincoln-Douglas Debates. Today's episode is going to be all about Lincoln as an orator, and the critical time in his life when he rose to national prominence for the first time. It occurred to me that I failed to describe Lincoln physically, as he came of age, despite describing just about everything else in his life. At a sizable six feet four inches, Abraham Lincoln was a rather tall man in his own day, and to this time, still the tallest president on record. Despite his lanky frame, he contained a considerably powerful physique, even as he adopted a career of paper and speeches instead of physical labor. According to one anecdote, even as a presidential candidate, Lincoln could still pick up an axe and hold it at arm's length away from him. Easy enough until you actually tried to hold it there firmly and see strong young men fail to match the feat of strength, like Lincoln did. Similarly, although Lincoln himself often made fun of his own facial features, the reality was a bit more complex. He wasn't conventionally handsome, with a big beaky nose gracing large cheekbones and ears. Yet he had a striking appearance and a dashing mop of black hair. He wasn't likely to grace the portrait studio of any Italian painters, but his looks served well enough in the rough-and-tumble world of law and politics. And as he aged, these features seemed to mellow and blend a bit. As a side note, in keeping with the fashion of the time, he kept clean-shaven. Beards were unpopular in the antebellum era, at least among those with access to a barber. I also want to take this moment to bring up one significant aspect of his personality or character. As a youth, he adopted a very rationalistic way of viewing the world. Although not precisely an atheist, as a young man he had more faith in great liberal ideas than the Bible. The Declaration of Independence, so to speak, was his religion. This not only went hand-in-hand hand with Wake values, but in one sense it was the trend of the Western world towards the fulfillment of the Enlightenment. He didn't spend much time in prayer. After all, the whole trend of the world was that mankind was showing it could rationally improve itself. In light of this, and in future events, Lincoln's Lyceum Address, delivered in 1838, appears simultaneously interesting and to some degree grimly prescient. Aside from urging self-improvement and recounting the many advantages of the United States, he pointed out the dangers of mob violence and used as an example the infamous murder of abolitionist editor Elijah Lovejoy. He also promoted, both directly and perhaps by counterpoint, the value of dispassionate logic as the antidote to social ills. Apart from being fairly successful locally, historians often identify this as Lincoln's first step into life as a public orator. However, we should also see this as the beginning of his public character, the public man, and the starting point for his values, which will change. Both the final years of Lincoln's attempt to rise up in politics and the coming war will spark remarkable transformation in his beliefs. Or perhaps the word change here is wrong, for it was more that Lincoln came to know and rely upon another side of himself in the hard, cold times to come, when reason alone did not prove enough. But let us return to the main thrust of this story and today's major topic, Lincoln's return to politics and the ambition that would in time vault him towards national fame. To become president, he would first need to overcome opposition in Illinois, and that was led by the remarkably formidable Stephen Douglas. Out of politics for years following his congressional term, Lincoln kept up with his connections and even campaigned for other candidates, 
but did not particularly have the hunger for politics without a clear goal in mind. Additionally, these were also the years when the Whigs began to unravel. The Compromise of 1850 had not been politically advantageous. The death of Henry Clay then took the single greatest champion in the Whig field out of American life for good. Lincoln made time specifically to eulogize Clay, who was always his hero. In that speech, he also noted Clay's views of slavery, and would echo them in the years to come. The Whigs, led by Winfield Scott, went into a bitter defeat and a permanent decline in 1852. But the political situation changed overnight just two years later in 1854. That's when Stephen Douglas took the fateful step of opening Kansas. To say that this event was shocking would understate things. To say it shook the nation to its core would also be understating it. In Illinois alone, that act, that decision, stirred up a hornet's nest of wrath. Stephen Douglas could ignore it for the moment because his political seat wasn't up for years, but it started wrecking other Northern Democrats. And it also stirred up the ire of Abraham Lincoln. From Chicago to Cairo, anti-Nebraska groups formed and began to speak out. These were the seeds which sprouted into the Republicans, but that wasn't happening quite yet. Instead, they formed a broad arc of opinion that was united in little else, ranging from Democrats who agreed with Stephen Douglas on everything except Nebraska on the one side to outright abolitionists on the other edge. This was a massive opportunity for Lincoln, too. Shaking up the political structure opened a window that Abraham Lincoln could use to re-enter politics. But that created the problem of how to unify these disparate groups without creating too many conflicts in the middle of them. October 3rd, 1854 is not a date which receives much importance in history, but we should not forget it. It may have been that day that set Lincoln and Douglas on a collision course. On that day, Stephen Douglas, eager to defend his Kansas-Nebraska Act, took the opportunity of the Illinois State Fair to try and spread his philosophy and claw back voters who were abandoning the party as fast as their feet could carry them. He delivered a well-received speech, but afterwards Lincoln showed up and publicly challenged him. The next day, Lincoln delivered his counterpoint speech, attacking Douglas on almost every point. Moreover, Lincoln then went on to prepare a greater, more complete version of that speech. On October 16th, that oration would go down in history. The intervening two weeks Lincoln spent in deep study, pulling all the relevant facts and history together. In Peoria, Lincoln spoke like he never spoke before. He expounded upon his remarks about Stephen Douglas and, with characteristically brief and accurate facts, hammered the man's actions. His speech concentrated almost all his energy upon slavery, and provided some of his best-known quotes. Perhaps the most significant was the following passage speaking of the spread of slavery. This declared indifference, but as I must think, covert real zeal for the spread of slavery. I cannot but hate. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives our republican example of its just influence in the world, enables the enemies of free institutions, with plausibility, to taunt us as hypocrites, causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity, and especially because it forces so many really good men amongst ourselves into an open war with the very fundamental principles of civil liberty, criticizing the Declaration of Independence, and insisting that there is no right principle of action but self-interest. In other words, Lincoln was asking, why aren't we doing better? And he meant it. Despite that, there was no hatred in the speech. It did not contain the fury of the abolitionist, but rather the resolution of the Whig or Free Soiler. 
Lincoln made it plain that he did not consider there to be a specifically southern or northern culture, and that men went back and forth over that line freely, as Lincoln himself had done. This was a drum that Lincoln would thump repeatedly, and to particular effect since it was important to many people who lived in the lower north, regions near to the Ohio River or the slave states. With this one moment, this one chance behind him, Lincoln now turned his full energy, idealism, and ambition towards becoming a senator. This was the next logical step for him politically, and, judging by his actions, what he had been hoping to accomplish for years. In fact, he went to the extreme of declining a seat in the state legislature on the grounds that it would make his election as a senator impossible. Simply put, the blowback over Nebraska had deeply damaged Stephen Douglas's prospects. The opportunity was there, and Lincoln saw it. In this, Lincoln had some real advantages. As a former Whig, a public speaker, and an experienced lawyer, he had a great deal of visibility already. Though not a member of the Temperance Union, he also happened to not drink much, or maybe at all, and this became widely enough known that pro-temperance voters might choose him over the hard-drinking Douglas and his notably hard-drinking supporters. Additionally, he was not an abolitionist, but Lincoln was saying enough in public to attract votes there, too, without completely alienating the anti-abolitionist majority. He even had the potential to gather in the votes of some Democrats, and he spoke in private with many of their leaders to try and find ways to make that happen. The most troublesome set of voters for him were the American Party, or Know-Nothings. We've discussed them before, and Lincoln's race demonstrates how they made politics tricky in a practical manner. The American Party naturally wanted immigration restrictions, and Lincoln very much did not. However, he made sure not to publicly declare his opposition too loudly. Right or wrong, Lincoln didn't have the political option of alienating them at this time. Building his political alliance over the course of 1855, Lincoln enjoyed a significant following going into the voting for senator. Now, if this is unclear, we're talking about the original form of senatorial selection. As per the Constitution, senators were chosen by state legislatures, not directly by the voters. That meant Lincoln didn't need the popular vote exactly, but rather a strong network of state congressmen. Douglas had previously mastered this form of politics and kept a tight leash on it, but his control was slipping. Douglas's own term was not under threat, but he was trying very hard to ensure he had a congenial fellow senator in office, basically a political subordinate instead of an equal or a rival. When the balloting in session actually did commence, Lincoln at first seemed to be winning. He came very close to taking the seat outright, but his support stalled out just a handful of votes away from victory. As round after round of voting went on, he simply could not get the last few Democrats to switch to a Whig candidate, even though those men came from factions not in Douglas's pocket. Realizing that Stephen Douglas would likely make a strong counterattack, and probably could get his own choice with a few more voting rounds, Lincoln caved. But he threw his support behind Lyman Trumbull. Now, we don't have time to explain much about Lyman Trumbull, but suffice it to say that he held views very similar to Lincoln's own on many things, but he was an anti-Douglas Democrat. Later on, in fact, he will switch to the Republicans and would go on to be an important political figure for the next 18 years. But the importance here lay in the fact that Trumbull would henceforth always have Lincoln's back, and many other Democrats would remember that Lincoln was willing to put his personal gain aside and support principle over party. 
Lincoln did not spend the next years idle after putting the first dent in Stephen Douglas's base. In the past, he had at first hesitated switching parties from the Whigs to the Republicans, being a staunch and proud Whig himself and an admirer of the great Henry Clay. But as matters were becoming clear, he formally made the Republicans his home, and quickly became a recognized party leader in Illinois. Abraham Lincoln stumped for the formal Republican Party platform in the presidential election of 1856. Now, this document may be thought of as something of a founding principles for the party, laying out its ideals in clear language. As a curious note, in May of that year, he also delivered his famous lost speech. Lincoln gave this stem winder of an oration in Bloomington, and among other things, it probably contained several of the core themes and ideas he would go on to fight Stephen Douglas with in the future. However, we can only guess at its exact contents because none of the reporters documented what was in it. And afterwards, nobody can entirely agree on the wording or the content precisely, although it was obviously a strongly anti-slavery message. Ironically, in the end, the fact that all the specifics were forgotten made it into something of a legend into which admirers could pour their own hopes and dreams. But regardless of the success or failure of one speech or one election or one moment, Lincoln began laying the groundwork for another attempt at becoming senator in the upcoming election of 1858. This time, he would challenge Stephen Douglas for the seat directly. Along the way, Democrats inadvertently handed Lincoln and the Republicans another huge club with which to strike back. And this was the Dred Scott decision. As discussed, James Buchanan and Roger Taney intended to knock the legs out from the Republicans. Instead, they nearly bowled themselves out of the game entirely. Lincoln capitalized on this in two ways in his great House Divided speech. First, he links Douglas directly to the slave power, and even implied that he was involved in the decision. There is no evidence of this, but Lincoln does make a good argument that the events were all tied together. He did this in part to make sure that Republicans and abolitionists understood that Douglas was no friend of theirs even if he sometimes opposed Southern Democrats on other points. More significantly, however, Lincoln pointed out that the logic of Taney's decision also made slavery a risk in free states as well. The validity of this is hard to assess, and many historians don't take it very seriously, but Lincoln's argument makes sense. Lincoln publicly pointed out that Taney's decision in Dred Scott denied the right of Congress to regulate the territories. Taney could potentially extend the same logic, however, to denying that states could regulate or ban slavery on very similar grounds. And obviously, the defenders of states' rights weren't exactly going to complain about it. Taney had already shown himself willing to throw much of the Constitution into the mud on the altar of slavery, and he might well continue for another supposed victory. Also, remember that part of the Dred Scott decision directly concerned Scott's extended residence not just in a free territory, but a free state. Taney declared that was perfectly fine which raised serious questions about just how long slaveholders could bring slaves through free states, which could, in theory, be required to recapture said escaped slaves under the Fugitive Slave Act. Lincoln himself suggested that, having fallen asleep on the dream of freeing the slaves, they would wake up and discover that their own states were now complicit in slavery. We cannot say for certain that this would have occurred if not for the Republicans in the Civil War. What we can say is that many Republicans legitimately feared the possibility this would happen, and at least some slaveholders 
were also slinking in those directions. Whether you want to call it irony or deeply appropriate, the very success of the Southern Democrats in imposing their will led to a massive backlash wave of Republican votes. And Lincoln personally was not about to give up. He eagerly prepared for the state congressional election of 1858. This was Lincoln's great chance to fight Douglas himself, not just a proxy battle as before. Complicating matters was the now-complete break between Stephen Douglas and Buchanan and the Southern Democrats. In theory, this cost Douglas some support. But due to the deep unpopularity and weakness of Buchanan, it arguably relieved him of a millstone. As mentioned, Lincoln felt compelled to shore up his political flank when a number of Eastern Republicans, including influential editor Horace Greeley, thought they could maybe pick up Stephen Douglas as an ally. This was an ambitious plan. And by ambitious, I mean impossible. For all that Greeley effusively praised Douglas in his paper, the men proposing it simply failed to understand that Douglas viewed himself, not Buchanan or Jefferson Davis or anyone else, as the champion and standard bearer for the Democrats. He would no more join the Republicans than Lincoln would move to Mississippi and buy a plantation. Lincoln therefore directed a few sharp words toward said Republicans, and made it clear that glorifying Douglas in public was not going to work, and worse yet, might well damage the young party in Illinois, a state it desperately needed. And he personally was not about to be dropped and humiliated in favor of his greatest rival because some meddler like Greeley wanted to play kingmaker. To make sure of it, however, Abraham Lincoln lined up Republican candidates, organized the campaigns for each state, and finished it off by having a convention nominate him for senator. This was rather a break from tradition, and certainly a mark of his ambition and planning. He used his acceptance speech for the nomination, in effect, to slam his rival Douglas, and again tie the man to the slave power, a half-imagined but also half-true conspiracy to spread slavery. It was a message that Republicans were eager to hear. In addition, Lincoln made sure to use that biblical turn of phrase that he had used before and would repeat frequently in the future. A house divided against itself cannot stand. This would prove very strongly identified with Lincoln himself, and it was by no means a trite or moderate expression. Rather, he directly stated an uncompromising challenge to slavery, although crucially, without requiring that an answer be found immediately or calling for radical action. This allowed Lincoln to walk the line between the overtly abolitionist and conservative elements in his party without tripping. Implicit in Lincoln's messaging lay the idea that by holding the line today, slavery must ultimately be defeated. Lincoln did not intend to win that battle himself. He did hope and expect to lay the foundations for winning it. Hearing about all these measures, Douglas admitted that Lincoln, a man a scant few years ago he would hardly have credited as a rival, had already become a formidable opponent in his own right. He responded by trying to defend his own record against slavery, and this was not totally non-existent. We've seen that Douglas was, despite his oftentimes alliance with Southern Democrats, neither a fool nor their tool. He turned against the Lecompton Constitution publicly, at considerable political cost. He also began the other major theme of his campaign, wild amounts of blatant race-baiting, but more pragmatically, he began a program of hurrying about the state delivering speeches on all of this with an energy that rivaled Lincoln's. At first, Lincoln challenged Douglas by following around these travels and delivering his own reply at every single stop. But for a variety of reasons, he wanted it and found it preferable to attack Douglas openly, 
He therefore challenged the seasoned politician to a series of debates around Illinois. The surprising part isn't that Lincoln dropped the gauntlet. It's that Douglas accepted. The importance of the Lincoln-Douglas debates cannot be underestimated, but they did not emerge from a vacuum. Perhaps the most surprising fact is that they existed at all. Going into the Senate contest, Douglas seemed as though he had every advantage. More fame, more publicity, more money, and greater standing. So when Lincoln issued a challenge to meet Douglas face-to-face, asking for a series of public debates, the latter man could probably have simply ignored the matter. But there was one thing Douglas knew. He knew the character and habits of Abraham Lincoln personally, and he knew very well that Lincoln was a darn hard worker and never gave up. If Douglas avoided active campaigning, and active campaigns were relatively uncommon in the antebellum era, Lincoln would not. If Douglas gave speeches, he could count on Lincoln to ride right behind him and give a counter to it the very next day, to which Douglas couldn't then easily rebut. Or at least that is my personal take on why Douglas decided to accept Lincoln's challenge. He could have avoided it, but only at the risk of appearing weak, and Douglas was nothing if not a scrappy fighter. Besides, Stephen Douglas was also confident in his positions and wanted to spread his views far and wide, as well as defending his status as the preeminent politician in Illinois. In this way, the debates themselves were less important than appearances suggest. Ultimately, neither Lincoln nor Douglas stated any particularly new positions. Their ideals were fairly well known, certainly in Douglas's case, and for both represented an opportunity to make the case for those principles to the public rather than spark a revolution. That said, it also inadvertently allowed them to make a case far beyond the confines of Illinois, and this would ultimately propel Lincoln into the White House. These debates became something of a media sensation, widely publicized around the country, not just in Illinois. Stephen Douglas, of course, already was nationally famous, but suddenly, people were hearing about this new guy, Abram Lincoln, or whatever his name was. He was challenging the great senator openly, and that got people's attention. From start to finish, the sole theme of the debates was slavery. Nothing else mattered. Both Lincoln and Douglas knew this had become the key question all over the nation. Both outlined their views at each stop, speeches which attracted voters by the hundreds and thousands from counties around. Reporters made sure to document the exchanges, which followed a simple formula of speaker, response, and speaker again with total equal time between the two at every debate. They alternated who would start. Although it had never been in doubt, the split between the two sides became obvious very quickly. At the most basic level, Lincoln pushed the idea that slavery was, unequivocally, a moral wrong, had always been viewed that way by the Founding Fathers, and that its expansion into the territories had to be resisted by free men as well. To Lincoln, slavery needed to be controlled, with its extinction left as an unstated goal. There was a subtle theme here that Lincoln could not entirely openly express, that he viewed black Americans as partners, if perhaps not equal ones, in the American project. Indeed, when pressed, he claimed quite the opposite, but the implication was still there. Lincoln himself declared that, while of course, obviously he surely didn't view African Americans as equals, he did go so far as to say, in the right to eat the bread without the leave of anyone else, which his own hand earns, he is my equal and the equal of Judge Douglas and the equal of every living man. That simple formulation was radical enough for the time and place. 
Of course, the more racist element in Illinois noticed the implication too, and Lincoln had to go to some degree to mollify them. So he also did say that he was not in favor of bringing about, in any way, the social and political equality of the white and black races. And similarly, he at least openly opposed interracial relationships, or allowing African Americans to hold office or vote. But before judging him, make sure you consider the rest of his life and actions on this very topic. To counter this, Douglas engaged in, well, open racism, or at least as far as what polite society would accept even in the 1850s. He directly said concerning African Americans that they never ought to be citizen of the United States. And he continued, saying, I hold this government was made on the white basis, made by the white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity forever. Lincoln was already going as far as anyone could in the Midwest and still be acceptable to most voters. Stephen Douglas was running in the exact opposite direction. To Douglas, the idea that an African of any sort could ever be a true American was itself absurd. They could never be equal to white citizens for him. Of course, this put him directly in line with the deeply unpopular Dred Scott decision. To counter the association with that case, he clarified that his view remained that popular sovereignty could prevent the expansion or even the maintenance of slavery if the local citizenry wished. In fact, even going deeper than the state level, he asserted that local jurisdictions could essentially nullify slavery if they declined to protect it, a point which uh, even other Northern Democrats probably did not believe or could adopt as principle. Regardless, to Douglas, it was no very great matter if the South wanted slavery and the North did not. He found it perfectly normal for Americans to decide this for themselves anywhere, as with anything else. There was no moral issue at the heart of it at all for him, beyond what white men happened to prefer. He was, of course, trying to walk his own tightrope of maintaining a principle that would stabilize Northern Democrats without entirely alienating Southern ones. After that unusual campaign, it undoubtedly seemed as though the actual election couldn't possibly compare in great dramatic moments. But as it turned out, this was not quite the case. Remember that we are dealing with the original form of the United States Congress, in which the senators were chosen by the state legislatures. Lincoln and Douglas's debates were therefore supporting, and supported by, a hundred or so local contests. These were contests that Lincoln won, but also lost? On election night, Lincoln waited nervously as the telegraph wires clacked with news from all corners of Illinois. Late into the evening, he realized the truth. What happened is that, although he did win a narrow margin of the popular vote, the overall number of people voting Democrat held just enough of the legislature and its seats and maintained an equally narrow majority there. Reputable historians argue whether or not this was because the previous legislature hadn't yet adjusted the district lines, but that relies on guessing exactly how the districts would have been adjusted had it actually happened. So no matter what occurred, the margin of victory was guaranteed to be razor-thin no matter what. For Lincoln personally, the election came as the worst of crushing shocks. He knew, of course, that Douglas would now easily become the choice for senator again. Lincoln had just taken his best shot at political ascension in a year of strong momentum, and it just hadn't been enough. So what was he to do now? After hearing the news, Lincoln walked home despondently in the gloom of night. 
Coming upon a curb, he tripped and nearly fell, but caught himself the last minute. In that moment, he said to himself that it was a slip and not a fall. And so it would prove to be. Lincoln achieved victory and defeat. He showed himself to be a true leader among Republicans. Sure, the situation had not gone his way. But he had just knocked down the mighty Stephen Douglas so badly that the once unassailable rock of Northern Democrats managed to scrape out a victory on the barest of margins. Republicans were on the rise, and they knew it. They were taking the fight and energy out of the American Party right at this moment. Douglas's election, in fact, turned out to be one of the few bright spots for the Northern Democrats. He was now a key linchpin of the party, and if that linchpin started to wobble, it might take down all of the Democrat Party with it. And Kansas, Nebraska, Dred Scott, all those issues were still on the table. They were still live problems. So the Republicans just might find victory within their grasp. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for The Rail Splitter. <laughs>